Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In the latter half of the second century, two kinds of Christians arose to defend the faith. On the one hand, apologists wrote defenses of Christianity directed at the Roman government. They responded to rumors arguing that Christians were decent people who should be shown toleration. On the other hand, heresy hunters, or heresiologists, began to combat Christian groups that diverged significantly from apostolic Christianity, such as the Gnostics, Valentinians, and Marcionites. Today we'll briefly cover this fascinating period of Christianity when persuasion, not coercion, was the means to defeat one's opponents. Here now is episode 486, Early Church History, Part 6, Apologists and Heresy Hunters. Early Church History, Number 6, Apologists and Heresy Hunters. That sounds interesting. What's an apologist? What's a heresy hunter? You're going to find out. I'm going to spill the beans on apologists right now. Apologists are people who defend the faith. They defend Christianity. An apology is not saying you're sorry in this context. An apology is saying, these are why I believe in Christianity. These are answers to your objections to Christianity. Sorry that it uses the same word, but you have to just adjust your ear to how this is so that you can follow along. The rumors about Christianity were widespread. There were lots of rumors about us, and there were lots of critics of Christianity, including Galen, Lucian of Samosata, Fronto, Celsus, and Porphyry. These apologists responded to criticisms against Christianity. So I've got a list here. I'm just going to cruise through. Quadratus is the first of the apologists about the year 130. Aristo of Pella, 140, Aristides, 145, Miltiades, 160, Justin Martyr, 165, Athenagoras, 170, Melito of Sardis, 170, Apollinaris of Hierapolis, 170, Tatian, 180, Theophilus of Antioch, 180, and the Epistle of Diognetus, sometime between 150 and 225. You can see there's a lot. Not all of these people have works that survive to our day, but there's a whole army of apologists. Apologists are defenders. They're fighting with the outside to defend Christianity. We're going to look at Quadratus, Epistle of Diognetus, and Joshua Martyr. I know you're thinking, oh, Sean, I wanted to look at all of them. Too bad. We're only going to look at three. We're going to go somewhat quickly through the three because after the apologists, we've got to talk about the heresy hunters too. So uh, we don't want to just get bogged down on one or the other. Quadratus is really interesting. He's the earliest of the apologists. He writes a book addressed to the emperor. And this is standard for apologists. They'll write books to the emperor, the Roman emperor. And uh, he writes sometime between 117 and 138. And this is all of what we have of Quadratus, the whole thing, this one paragraph. It's all that survives. And it's in a quotation from someone else, so that's why we have it today. He says, but the works of our Savior were always present, for they were true. Those who were healed and those who rose from the dead were seen not only when they were healed and when they were raised, but were constantly present. 
And not only while the Savior was living, but even after he had gone, they were alive for a long time, so that some of them survived to our own time. Quadratus is living in that time period between when some people Jesus had healed were still alive and the next generation when those people would all be gone. He's, he's kind of a, a bridge person who as an old man can say to people, I met the girl Jesus raised from the dead or I saw the boy that Jesus healed. Because Jesus healed so many people that it would stand to reason that some of those people, if, if they were young when Jesus healed them, would still be alive many years later. And so Quadratus is building a case based on eyewitness reports of seeing people who were healed, and those people were eyewitness reports of Jesus himself. And you can do that if you live as early as Quadratus. But after him, that's not a strategy that's available anymore because eventually these people died, and we get other strategies to deal with accusations against Christianity, like the Epistle of Diognetus. This document is very hard to date, and it only survives in one manuscript. And actually, the one manuscript that we had uh, got bombed in a war, but they had made copies of it before. So like, it's, we barely even have this thing. And it uh, dates anywhere from 117 to 313. Michael Holmes says, uh, to put it between 150 and 225, and there are lots of different ideas about who wrote the epistle to Diognetus. It could be Hippolytus, Aristides, or Pantinus. Pantinus we'll talk about next time. He's very important in Alexandria, Egypt. And we'll talk all about Alexandria in our next two whole sessions because Alexandria is so important for church history. But anyhow, the epistle to Diognetus has uh, responses to some of the criticisms against Christianity. And it's not unique to this epistle. You find it in a lot of the apologists. They respond to these criticisms over and over again. The criticisms are, are as follows. Christians are incestuous because they call each other brother and sister. And you're married, and you're calling your, each other brother and sister. So they say Christians are practicing incest. And they say Christians are cannibals because we eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. And they say Christians are politically subversive because they won't offer incense to the image of Caesar. They called us atheists because we don't worship the gods. So these are the kinds of accusations that were and rumors. You know how rumors don't need a lot to, to work with and they, they could just go viral. Right? They, they might not have had social media, but they had the Agora, they had the forum, they had the marketplace where people would gather and whisper and say, oh, that person's a Christian, they probably eat their baby. And so the apologists are defending against this. I want to share with you this one quote from Diognetus, it's just so cool. It's from chapter 5, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 17. It says, for Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. You can see how he's talking to outsiders, to non-Christians here. Verse 2, For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, Christianese, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the thought and reflection of ingenious people, nor do they promote any human doctrine, as some do, 
But while they lived in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and followed the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry, like everyone else, and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. Wow. They love everyone, and by everyone, they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, and yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners. By the Greeks, they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Beautiful writing. Really powerful case. You can feel the force of it as being made that, guys, let's stop picking on the Christians. Let's stop arresting the Christians. Let's stop beating up the Christians. They're good people. That's what he's trying to get across to them. You, and he, specifically, government authorities. That's the target of all these different apologetic texts. Then we go to our third and final apologist, Justin Martyr. Justin is so fascinating. He lived sometime around 100 to 165 he was born into paganism, just a typical worshiper of the old-fashioned gods, Greek and Roman gods. And he lived in the area of Samaria, what is today called Nablus, in the West Bank of Israel, where you can go and drink water from Jacob's well, even to this day. Justin Martyr was an intellectual. He started out as a Stoic, and then he became a Peripatetic, and then a Pythagorean, and then a Platonist, and finally, a Christian. So he went on what we would call an intellectual journey of spiritual awakening from one idea to another. He converted to Christianity, but he continued to wear the philosopher's robe because he felt that Christianity was the true philosophy, so he should not stop identifying as a philosopher because he finally found wisdom, true wisdom. He said that predictive prophecy is what convinced him to become a Christian seeing predictions in the Bible that were then later fulfilled, which is interesting. He founded a school in Rome. He rented a room above a bathhouse, and a bathhouse in antiquity isn't a bad institution. It's a it's normal, normal city uh, facility, and you had the, the hot bath, you had the 
tepid, the hot bath was called the calidorium, then you had the tepidorium, and then you had the frigidorium, which was cold water, right? And, you, and you, you, that's part that's something they, they, they did. They bathed publicly together. It wasn't sexual. It was just an enjoyable amenity that good cities had. And so he rented a room right above or nearby a bathhouse where he would have students and teach them his philosophy of Christianity. In the years sometime between 163 and 167, I, I put 165 here, he and six others were rounded up by the government and he was beheaded. So when you read the words of Justin and he's saying to the, to the emperor, and he's living in Rome where the emperor lives, and he's saying to the emperor, Christians are good people, don't kill us. It's not like, it's not like rhetorical. It's not literature. Like this, these are, it, is, it is literature and he does use rhetoric. But it's life and death. Like he ends up dying, and that's not his last name, martyr. It's actually because he became a martyr. He died for his faith. He's known as Justin Martyr as a result to this day. His first apology was addressed to the Emperor Antoninus Pius. We're going to read a little bit of it in a second. One of his concerns, one of Justin's concerns, is the accusation that Christianity is new. This is a major problem. To be a new religion, is to be a false religion. Even to this day, we feel this way. If somebody said to you, I've got this, this take on God and spiritual reality, and they tell you this whole story, maybe it sounds like the Gnostics, I don't know, whatever it sounds like. And, and you say, oh, how'd you, how'd you learn that? Is there like a sacred book? And you say, yeah, it's right over here. And you, you look at the sacred book, and you see copyright 1973 on it. Is that when... <laughs> Like, is that when this thing started? And it says, yeah, 1973, our, our, our founder got this revelation, and this is our religion. We, we struggle to take that seriously, right? Justin Martyr is only living a century after Christ and the Apostles. He's dealing with this accusation. They're saying, you, you guys are a new religion. Can't be true. Everybody knows that. New stuff stinks. Old stuff is great. It's a little different in our culture today, but that was their mindset. And so Justin says, you know what? It's not a new religion. See, my obvious move, and probably your obvious move, would be to say it's the next stage of Judaism, right? Because we have the Old Testament, it starts in the beginning, literally the first line of the book, and then it goes all the way through to the end of that period, and then Jesus comes right in after that, right? Makes sense. That's not the move he made. He said, you know what? No, 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 no. Truth is all God's. Doesn't matter if a philosopher understands truth or a religious person, it's all God's truth revealed to them through his rational principle, which is a Stoic idea called the Logos. So the Logos is the principle that people are tapping into to gain truth, whatever truth it is they discover. And so he claims Socrates as a pre Christian because Socrates had truth. You can only get truth from the Logos, who became a human being in Jesus Christ. And so Socrates and Jesus are. Connected. And so is Abraham and Heraclitus and Elijah. Pagan philosophers found truth and were inspired by the divine logos that became flesh in Christ. So Christianity, this is all Justin's idea, is foreshadowed by the philosophers. All right, let me show you his style so you can experience it for yourself. It's a great first sentence. Not only because it's long, but because it gives you all the information. Are you ready? First Apology of Justin Martyr, chapter 1, verse 1. To the emperor Titus, alias Hadrianus, 
Antoninus, Pius Augustus Caesar, and to his philosopher's son, Verissimus, and to Lucius, the philosopher, Caesar's natural son, and Pius's adopted son, a lover of culture, and to the sacred senate, and all the Roman people, on behalf of people of every nation who are unjustly hated and grossly abused, I, Justin, son of Priscus and grandson of Bacchius, from Flavia, Neapolis, and Syria, Palestine, myself being one of them, have drawn up this address and petition. It's a great first sentence. It's fun to read, right? Second sentence. Reason dictates, and I do have an ellipsis or two in there, so it's probably more than just one sentence just connected together. Reason dictates that those who are truly pious and philosophers should honor and love only the truth, declining to follow those who do or teach unjust things. So you then, since you are called pious and philosophers and guardians of justice and lovers of culture, listen in every way, and it will be shown if you are such. For we indeed reckon that no evil can be done to us unless we are proved to be evildoers or shown to be wicked. You are able to kill us, but not to hurt us. <laughs> Look, it, it means, I'm impressed if you say this, right? But it means so much more from a guy who literally got arrested, beaten, and had his head chopped off by the very people he's writing this to. Like, he lived this. I don't know, it's just so impressive to me. Not that I agree with everything Justice says, by the way. I disagree with him a lot, okay? But I'm trying to present you, Justin, as Justin. So his other book that's very significant for us is called The Dialogue with Trifo the Jew. And it's a story about, and nobody knows if it actually happened or not, it doesn't matter. It's a dialogue between Justin and Trifo. And the story is that Trifo has just fled from the Bar Kokhba revolt of 135 when Jerusalem got destroyed by the Romans. And uh, he's fleeing, and he's coming up north, and he runs into Justin. And Justin is this philosopher Christian dude, and he says to Trifo, what's going on? And Trifo's like, I'm escaping from this. And they start having a religious dialogue. And the whole point is Justin is trying to make Trifo into a Christian. That's the whole basis of the book. But it, the book ends up being an apology to Jews, in other words, a defense of Christianity to Jews, because Jews are looking down on Christianity. And in the second century, the Jewish synagogue was like the modern-day megachurch, and the Christian church was kind of like the, uh, the upstart, you know, in an apartment above a bathhouse, not a fancy place, small home gathering, okay? So the Jews were in more of a position of power at this point in the second century I mean, they literally just rebelled against the Roman government for the third time. Like, these people are not wimpy. You know, they're tough, they're tough people. And uh, so Justin is trying to defend Christianity against, against this uh, accusation that Jesus is not a real Messiah. Because if he was the real Messiah, where's the kingdom? The Jews ask that over and over again, and Christians have to respond. You have to say something. Christian says to the Jew, I believe Jesus of Nazareth is the true Messiah. Jew says to Christian, where is he? Christian says, he's in heaven. Jew says, well, Messiah is supposed to rule on earth. What's he doing in heaven? Right? I mean, you could just imagine these conversations. And so this whole book is kind of like a, an apology or a defense of Christianity to Judaism. And in the process, Justin, I'm not 100% sure, but I think he actually is the one that invents the concept of heresy. 
Before Justin, heresy is a school, a faction, a sect. It's not a, a group of people that believe something weird, okay? Which is what we think of as heretics today, is a group of people that believe some unusual teachings. Justin is the one that really develops that understanding. And he does that in the conversation with Trifo, because Trifo asks him at a certain point, he says to Justin, do you really think, you Christians, that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt? And that the prophecies of the Hebrew prophets, that there's going to be a kingdom on the earth and all this stuff, do you think that's really going to happen? And Justin does not flinch. He says, absolutely, 100%. But there are some of us, and I don't want you to confuse us with them, that don't believe this. And this is the part I want to quote to you. This is from Dialogue with Trifo, chapter 80. And this is the Thomas Falls translation. Those who blaspheme the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob by asserting that there is no resurrection of the dead, but that their souls are taken up to heaven at the very moment of their death, do not consider them to be real Christians. Just as one after careful examination would not acknowledge as Jews the Sadducees or similar sects, whereas I and all other holy Orthodox Christians feel certain that there will be a resurrection of the flesh, followed by a thousand years in the rebuilt, embellished, and enlarged city of Jerusalem, as was announced by the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the others. So Justin is saying to them that this one belief, resurrection from the dead, is a key to identify fake Christians, which is just what the word heresy means. It's a sect or a faction of Christians that are not real Christians. He's the first person to make this kind of a move. And if you really think about it, this particular doctrine is so brilliant. It's so brilliant because by saying you have to believe in resurrection instead of your soul just going up to heaven, he automatically excludes all these different kinds of Gnostics that were all teaching this, that you're really supposed to go to some higher plane of existence when you die. He's excluding them and the Marcionites who are saying the same thing but have a totally different religious system and the Valentinians, and all these other different groups, he's able to exclude all of them with one point on his statement of faith. And so from him to this day, Christians, we have statements of faith, and we use the statement of faith to figure out who's in and who's out. And probably most people who look for a church, they move to an area, they look for a church, they look at the church website, they go to the statement of faith, they say, is this the kind of church that agrees with what I believe is true or not? Justin was the first one to make that move. So I figured I'd mention it as, as we, we come across it. He had written another book called The Syntagma Against All Heresies, or Catalog Against All Heresies, and that is, has been lost. This is really clear here in the dialogue with Trifo, which is a good point for us to introduce heresy hunters. The boring term for heresy hunters is heresiologists, okay? But like, who wants to say that? Heresy hunters. We've got Justin in 140 to 160, Irenaeus in 180, Tertullian in 200, Hippolytus in 200, Eusebius in 324, Epiphanius in 375, Theodoret in 452, just to give you a sampling of heresy hunters in the first 500 years of Christianity. Heresy hunters or heresiologists are Christians 
who want to list out all the different groups that they disagree with and their beliefs and why they're wrong. Does that make sense? So these books are kind of boring to read because they're, they're, and they're not very nice or respectful. <laughs> they're like, what an idiot. How could you believe that? That's more the tone you get in these uh, heresy documents. But they're actually super important for church history. They're so, so important for us because typically the people that get labeled heresies, their books don't survive because the uh, rest of the church says, we're going to burn your books, or we're going to persecute you, or we're going to make your religion illegal once we get the power of the government behind us to do that. And so the heresy books are the only books left that tell us about all these other beliefs. So it actually has the opposite effect for church historians. We wouldn't even know about these people if you didn't write this book and go into all this detail explaining their beliefs. So it's kind of hysterical that it did the opposite. And the other thing that happens, and we'll see this with Irenaeus, is that the heresy hunters inevitably, depending on when they write, become heresies themselves as the church continues to develop and change its beliefs. They look back at him and say, oh, he was a heretic too. <laughs> Which is funny. So what are the arguments that heresy hunters make against other Christian groups? Well, here are a few standard arguments. Your beliefs are too complicated. That's just too complicated. All that uh, Achimoth and Yaldabaoth and uh, Christ is different than Jesus. It's too complicated. Come on. And they trace their beliefs to a heresiarch. A heresiarch is the leader of the heresy. So if you can label a group, you can dismiss a group. So you notice when I called uh, the Valentinians, that, that's a group. That's not what the Valentinians called themselves. You know what they called themselves? Christians. And if you really squeezed them, they would say we're the spiritual Christians. They get labeled by the heresy people, the heresy watchdogs. They get labeled as Valentinians because if they can associate somebody with Valentinus and they can, they can say a story about Valentinus and how he's a bad guy, then all the people that are associated with him are all excluded from Christianity and are marginalized and are no longer a threat. So this is the major strategy to use is to call a group by the name of the leader, the heresiarch. Number three strategy to deal with heresies is to say that they have an unnatural interpretation of Scripture or that they can't trace their beliefs back to the apostles. This is kind of hysterical because Valentinus is alleged to have learned his doctrine from Thutis, who learned it from Paul the Apostle, and another heretic named Basilides learned from Glaucius, who learned from Peter. So like the heretics actually have only one generation between them and an apostle. And uh, the heresy hunters are saying, oh, you can't trace your beliefs back. And yet, like the heretics, at least early on, can. Uh, and everyone starts doing this. They start tracing themselves back. They're like, well, I was taught by Polycarp. You know who Polycarp was taught by? The Apostle John. So what you got? You know, so like th there's this, this comparison of what later becomes called apostolic succession. They also said that perverted truth leads to perverted morals and that new generations recycle old heresies. So if you could say, oh, well, Eduardo's beliefs, that sounds just like this heresiarch. That sounds just like Saturninus. You're a Saturninian. That's what you are. And now we can just dismiss Eduardo. Right? It's a strategy for dealing with competitors. That's what heresy stuff is all about. 
I'm not totally against it either. I mean, as, as we'll see with Irenaeus, this guy stands up against all the Gnostic stuff we were just reading about, our last session, and he details it all and disproves it because somebody needed to do that. So it's not, I, I, I'm a little tongue-in-cheek with the heresy guys because like so-called discernment ministries today are super annoying. They tend to destroy rather than build up. I, I think you've got to hold the line, but at the same time, you want to be constructive too. I'm getting my own opinion in here. Oops. Let's move on to Irenaeus of Lyon. Irenaeus of Lyon lived from 130 to 202 or thereabouts in France, modern-day France, but then it was called Gaul. And he was the most important heresiologist of the second century. He wrote a book called The Refutation and Overthrow of Falsely Called Gnosis. So he won't even grant that they had knowledge. It's falsely called knowledge. But we typically refer to Irenaeus' book as Against Heresies. It's just short and sweet. And uh, it's, it's a very long book, and it survives today in a Latin translation which then gets translated into English or whatever language you speak. Irenaeus so subsumed Justin's work on heresy that everyone stopped copying Justin's book, and they just copied Irenaeus' book. And that's kind of standard that, like, say Justin writes like 20 years earlier than Irenaeus. Irenaeus goes to write his book of heresies. And he's like, all right, well, let me copy all of Justin's stuff and then add all the new stuff that we've had since then. And then a century later, somebody's like, give me that Irenaeus book. I'll copy that, and then I'll add all my own to it. And, and so they get longer as time goes on as well. In Against Heresies, Irenaeus attacks a whole smattering of different groups, including Valentinus, Marcus, Ptolemaeus, Saturninus, Basilides, Carpocrates, Serenthus, the Ebionites, we talked about them, the Nicolaitans, Serdo, Marcion, Tatian, the Incretites, the Orphites, the Sethians, the Canaanites, and many more. And that's just book one of five books. Wow. And then after he explains all these different belief systems and identifies them, it's, it's almost like a biologist like identifying species of animals, right? Like this one, this is all their beliefs, and we're going to call them Orphites. Yeah. And then these ones over here, they're Canites. And these ones are Sethians, right? So you, you, you've got this taxonomy and then a description, and then he's going, going to disprove them. Here is his motivation in his own words for what he thinks he's doing from the preface of book one. Irenaeus says, Certain people are discarding the truth and introducing deceitful myths. Stories and endless genealogies, which, as the apostle says, and when patristic people say the apostle, they always mean Paul, just so you know, which the apostle says promote speculations rather than the divine training that is in faith. By specious argumentation, craftily patched together, they mislead the minds of the more ignorant and ensnare them by falsifying the Lord's words. Thus, they become wicked interpreters of genuine words. They bring many to ruin by leading them, under the pretense of knowledge, away from him who established and adorned this universe as if they had something more sublime and excellent to manifest than the God who made heaven and all things in heaven. You see how he's arguing against the Gnostics I talked about last time. By cleverness, with words, they persuasively allure the simple folk. This is his concern. The simple folk. To this style of searching. 
but then absurdly bring them to perdition by trumping up their blasphemous and impious opinion against the Creator. The fact that the Gnostics say the Creator is an evil God is absolutely offensive to anyone who accepts the Bible's teachings. In this matter, they just cannot distinguish what is false from what is truth. We will also offer suggestions to the best of our limited capacity for refuting this doctrine by showing how utterly absurd, inconsistent, and incongruous with the truth their statements are. How about that? Utterly absurd, inconsistent, and incongruous with the truth their statements are. So that's what Irenaeus thinks he's doing. Ironically, by later standards, Irenaeus himself is heretical too. And I will return to that later, okay? Especially when we start to look at the Trinity and Nicaea and the Council in 325. Let's review. Number one, apologists focused on defending Christianity against outsiders by writing to the Roman authorities and laying out their case for toleration. That's all they're asking for. Stop killing us. That's all Justin said. Like, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. And then they killed him. But you know what? Christianity didn't die with Justin when he died in 165 because other Christians took up the mantle in Rome, in that very city, and in other cities around the world. And Christianity continued to spread and spread. Getting excited. Justin Martyr taught that Christianity had continuity with Greek philosophers who also accessed the Logos. Heresy hunters or heresiologists defended Christianity against insiders who had differing beliefs from theirs. So you see the difference here. The apologists are dealing with outsiders and the, the heresy hunters are dealing with the insiders who had differing beliefs from theirs. Christians fought heresy by using key beliefs they knew their opponents couldn't affirm and by labeling them. Justin and Irenaeus emphasized resurrection and an ultimate kingdom on earth to exclude those who held varieties of Gnostic beliefs. And in our next session, we're going to look at Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt, and two people in particular, Clement and Origen. Two massively influential Christians. Clement is a contemporary of Irenaeus. Irenaeus is way out west in Gaul, and Clement is way down south in Egypt. And Justin's over here in Rome, right? So these are very different places in the world, but they're all happening at the same time. And there's just no way to tell you all of it at once, because at the same time as Valentinus is in Rome, Justin's in Rome, and so is Marcion. Like, all these things are happening in the same place at the same time. And it's just a wild, wild century to study together. So we'll look at Origin of Alexandria and Clement of Alexandria next time as we continue through our journey of early church history. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 486 on apologists and heresy hunters and leave your feedback there. We'd love to see what you have to say about that. On our last episode, Gnostics and Valentinians, a number of people did comment in on the Facebook group. One person said, I listened and my head exploded. <laughs> An understandable response to the insanely complicated world of the Gnostics, especially the Sethian Gnostics. That was Suzanne. She goes on to say, reminds me so much of the ancient Near Eastern legends like Gilgamesh. 
Michelle wrote, serious question, unless I am a history buff as a Christian in the 21st century, why would I want to understand theological and Christological development in the 3rd and 4th centuries, especially in Alexandria? I wrote back to her, why seek understanding of anything? For me, it starts with curiosity. I simply ask the question, why? Why are most churches Trinitarian if the Bible is not? The next question is when, quickly followed by how. The Gnostic speculations are part of the answer of how Christianity got off track. Alexandria is ground zero for the multiple mutations that eventually produced an eternal and co-equal Christ. Secondly, beyond just understanding what happened, there's the apologetic answer. Evangelical Christians and Catholics are convinced that the Trinity was believed and taught from the beginning, although as a later commenter points out, uh, many Catholics are comfortable admitting that the Trinity was actually a developed idea that occurred over time and not something taught from the beginning. But considering there are a billion Catholics and the, the Catholic apologists tend to be a little more hardcore, I have found Catholics asserting that uh, from the beginning there was understanding of what the Trinity was. Anyhow, by exposing the truth of what really happened slowly over centuries, we can disprove their claim which should create a little bit of space for tolerating us, or at least moving forward into a biblical discussion. There are other good reasons that I lay out in episode one, but these two are at the top of my list. This is something that I bring up with people over and over again, and I'm not sure exactly why this needs to be the case, but I'm used to it. I can certainly say that. I mean, I'm the guy that decided to spend my graduate work on early church history. I understand the value of it. It makes sense to me. Part, and part of that value is understanding how Christianity got off track. I really think that being able to tell the story of how we got off track on a particular doctrine paired with a biblical case. Of course, the biblical case is always going to be primary. But look, you can build a biblical case on anything. You can. Uh, but history is history. And sure, you can have different takes on it and different interpretations on it, but the primary sources are the primary sources. And most people don't do business with the primary sources. And when you see it and how people wrote, it really does stick out to you that there was no Trinity yet. It just wasn't there. The Gnostics had some interesting ideas, an interesting take on reality. And I think it goes pretty clearly against apostolic Christianity. But what's interesting is that as time goes forward, some of these Gnostic ideas do manage to creep into the church. And uh, we're going to see that in future episodes, especially with Clement of Alexandria. And I don't want to spoil it right now, but between Clement and then Origen, we do have uh, some Gnostic ideas entering the church. And uh, if you don't even want to say the Gnostic ideas, you can at least say the same motivations that drove the Gnostics to come up with the story they came up with motivated Clement and Origen to reconfigure, if we can put it that way, Christology in a way that was more palatable to their world. And why does any of this matter? I don't know. Because it's the truth. Because it's what happened. And I think if people knew the truth of how the Trinity slowly developed over time, they would not say, you have to believe in this in order to be part of our group, or in order to come to our church, or in order to be part of our homeschool co-op, or to go to our college, or to get a PhD at our college, or any of the other 50 million doors that are closed to biblical Unitarians today, because 
everyone's convinced that this doctrine just fell from the sky in the time of the apostles and has been upheld by the church from the beginning. Not so, my friends, not so. And we're going to tell that story here. Now, I realize history is not for everyone. I'm the first person to understand that. There's lots of people that will not be interested in taking this class. But there are lots of people who are curious. There are lots of people who do want to know what in the world happened. How did the world get to be so Roman Catholic in the Middle Ages and so Eastern Orthodox in, the, in that same period? Um, well, this is the story of how that happened. And I think we can learn lessons from it, too. But yeah, I, I'd be the first one to admit this is not for everyone. That's totally fine. Connect back into this podcast after we get through this class, and we'll be on to something else, just like we did with our Scripture and Science class. Some people are just like, I don't care about science. It's not an issue in my world. Okay, fine. Well, then just loop back in after we're done with that, and hey, look, we're doing church history now, or who knows what we'll be doing next. Probably some interviews, if I had to guess at this point in the game. But um, we'll, we'll see you when we come back around. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. Thanks so much to those of you who are supporting Restitutio, by the way. This <laughs> church history class has been rather expensive. I've had to buy a lot of books. Those of you who have supported have covered all the expenses, so I'm so thankful to you for doing that. We'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.